Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 196 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the Chinese Grand Prix out of Shanghai, China. Near it, really. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau. And I would like to mark the occasion that since the last show that we had, it is our anniversary, Robin. Uh, it is now nine years since we posted the first episode of what was then called the F1 show and uh, has now, of course, become fun with cars. So that was April 12th, 2007, which is a heck of wow. a long time ago. So uh, happy anniversary. I did not get you anything. Thank you, sir. I also got you nothing. And in addition to that, I will probably make your life a little less convenient to mark the occasion. And how is that? <laughs> That's TBD. I'm going to surprise you, we'll say, and uh, perhaps myself. It's actually, that means it's been more than 10 years because we did Formula One, etc., our short-lived video podcast. I was going to say ill-fated, but I guess short-lived is a good term for, as well. <laughs> well. You know, that's a tomato-tomato kind of a deal. The other thing I'll mention, so that was episode one uh, was the 2007 Malaysian Grand Prix. We didn't quite have our stuff together to start at the beginning of the season that year. Uh, we covered the uh, the explanation of the new name and format for like both listeners or <laughs> watchers who watched uh, the old show. Well, your parents and mine. Uh, we had a race report. Lewis Hamilton's tremendous performance, Felipe Massa's lackluster performance, Kimi Raikkonen's weak engine and how it affected his race, Toyota, Super Aguri, remember those? David Coulthard ain't got no brakes, and the show was 24 minutes long. So we, we got a lot done in that show. The show what the show had David Coulthard as a driver? Yeah. What? And he ain't got no brakes. <laughs> well, that should have made him faster. That sounds like something you wrote. Well, yeah, no, it... Almost certainly. So that, that's kind of cool, though. You know, that was uh, that was a long time ago. And if you listen back to it, it actually sounds pretty much the same. Uh, it's got the same <laughs> intro music. And, uh, you know, we, we got it right the first time. And here we are. That's right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And if it's broke a little, still don't fix it. <laughs> sounds like a plan. <laughs> I understand you, sir, have some follow-up to discuss. This is very true. Uh, we had a very uh, lovely uh, conversation that continues, uh, you know, all the time on our Facebook page, and we had one Allison Aru ask us when the podcast was coming, and we said, "Oh, it's coming soon." But she's from a town called Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, in Australia, and that was, in my opinion, the coolest sounding place to live ever. That's not a real it's place. Like, Where do you live, Wagga Wagga? <laughs> That's come on. That's it. And so we had a, a nice little conversation. Turns out her father raced uh, sedans uh, back in the day. So I wanted to give Allison a shout out slash thank you. And just in general, say that we had a nice, lovely conversation about uh, the various doodads and bits going on <laughs> in the Formula One world. One, we could have mentioned it last show, but just a quick, you know, Jacques Villeneuve uh, had some strong opinions about uh, the drivers having opinions about racing and especially the qualifying format. He thought that drivers should, quote, shut up about it and just race because it's not their job to make the rules and all this kind of stuff. That turned into a very lovely conversation on our Facebook page. So I always encourage people to spend time there when they can because it is a good time with a lot of knowledgeable people. I wonder, what is Jacques Villeneuve's job like in all this? I mean, he just comes out of the woodwork every once in a while to make these weird proclamations and show up with his baggy-ass driving suit and then uh, and talk a little bit. I don't know. It's, he's, he's gotten a little weird. 
I guess, I don't know if he's still doing country music albums or what, what his whole deal is, but um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like he's kind of like a shock jock. Like he wants to get attention. He's feeling lonely. So he says, okay, what's something I can say that will get people to pay attention to me? And it has to be increasingly ridiculous. And the irony of it is that Jacques Villeneuve, when he was driving, was one of the most outspoken and opinionated drivers on the grid. And now that he's not on the grid, he doesn't think drivers should have opinions. He wishes his nickname were Shock Jacques. Yes. That's actually a pretty sweet nickname. In a way, Shock Jacques is fitting for him, but maybe not in the way that he would like it to be. He's not, he's not, he's not going to, history is not serving him as well in terms of how good of a driver he was in comparison to the other drivers in Formula One history. Yeah, or, I mean, especially when you think of, uh, you know, recent uh, driver champions and you come back and there's this, this one weird one, 1997, Jacques Villeneuve, and it's like, oh, right, yeah, that happened. And it just it was sort of the, the fluke of the car of the season. And I've seen it uh, written that, he didn't really win that season. It's just that everyone else lost, and it just happened that he was there. That's exactly right. In fact, that is what uh, one of our comments was about that uh, about him, and it's just all very true. I think my favorite comment in regards to him was Timothy Allen Fox said he should star in his own reality TV show in which he flies around the world and lets people punch him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> There are scenes of folks that would take part, I'm sure. There are scores, excuse me, scores of folks that would take part, I'm sure, especially across the pond. But he could start over here in uh, North Carolina with Max Pappas and then fly out to California for Hiro Matsushita. Matsushita. Anyway, at the end of every episode, he gets a new pair of designer glasses. Anyway, and uh, I added... Uh, that we could name the show Vilified. But anyway, so if anyone has some Kickstarter money that they want to use, I'm all for this. Shock, shock, Vilified. Yeah, that could work. Anyway, there was a race in China. We were not lying about that. And it's now six in a row for Nico Rosberg, three in a row this season. Nico Rosberg has 75 points. The hat trick, he's, he's starting what he could. This is the dream season for him. It couldn't be going better. It really couldn't, partly because, of course, he's won all the races, but also there's no, uh, I mean, of course, there's a second place, but uh, his his various rivals have been trading places, of course, with Vettel famously not starting a race. Uh, now he, you know, and then and then doing kind of okay, and Hamilton having issues. His uh, five-stop strategy did not pan out for him in, uh, in China in this case, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Lewis in a bit. But uh, yeah, it's like going really well for him and also not going really well for a lot of other guys. And uh, none of us expected to see, you know, Ricardo, for example, up there, uh, as, as high as he was qualifying second, out qualifying the Ferraris uh, after, of course, uh, you know Hamilton's problems early on and, and whatnot. But yeah, it was uh, just kind of crazy times with uh, with the way everything panned out. Well, so here's the thing: Do you remember it was the first episode we had this season? I talked about uh, I put together a kind of like theoretical best case for a driver slash worst case for the fans season. Like how far could someone really just run away with it? Right. And so how and how quickly could the championship be wrapped up? Well, so far, Rosberg, we're living fairly close to 
a best case slash worst case drive right now where one driver is winning everything and everyone else is equally distributing the points. Now, that's not happening exactly that way, of course, but it's it's a lot closer than I expected, certainly. So here's the irony about this. This sounds like doomsday super boredom scenario. The first three races, and China, I think the most so, have been quite entertaining. Yeah, almost in spite of what's going on out at the very front, because it's been not super easy, but pretty easy ride for Nico Rosberg. But with all the crazy action and uh, and goings on later down in the field, uh, and to see, yeah, uh, of course, you know, Hamilton is second in the points. He's got 39 points behind Rosberg with 75. Uh, but then it's really close to only three points back to Ricardo, who's uh, actually in third. Three points back again to Vettel uh, in fourth, and then uh, back about five points back to Kimi Raikkonen. So, of course, it's still early on, but it is, like you say, a pretty good distribution of different drivers. Uh, but it is Hamilton uh, is second, you know, in, in spite of uh, uh, only getting up to seventh place for the end of uh, the Chinese Grand Prix. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been pretty interesting to see that that shake out. I still get the feeling though that uh, this is not just the way the whole season is going to go. That Lewis's just situation is going to get resolved and turned around. He's going to be able to continue to do his thing in qualifying and go on to uh, make you know much more successful races happen especially when you know when he gets the starts figured out that uh, he'll be able to go on and, and come back and come back from this deficit and continue to do well i don't think uh nico's dream season is going to last forever for the whole rest of the year yeah you know it's funny it's ironic because we weren't expecting this to be the case but the jacques villeneuve mention is a kind of apropos here because nico has been driving really well i'm not trying to take anything away from him but so far nico isn't winning the championship so much as the drivers closest to him are losing it. Uh, Ferrari's had reliability reliability issues, especially in Bahrain. Lewis Hamilton has had some mistakes in the race starts, but also a fair amount of bad luck. And then on the other side, Red Bull is you know more a, a bit quicker. He finally got rid of those trash Renault engines and got those really cool tag engines. Such a good move for them, really smart. And, uh, you know, Williams is still strong. So we have a lot of teams vying for best of the rest. And even within Mercedes and, to a lesser extent, Ferrari, there's mistakes that are happening around Nico, but not to Nico. So this is kind of the 97 Villeneuve season happening so far. But I agree with you, Jim. I don't think it'll be a season-long thing necessarily. I'm just saying that, that's kind of what's happened. And sure enough, it's given him a 36-point lead. That's pretty darn good. That's a race-and-a-half lead for Nico Rosberg just three races in. Yeah, I agree the, the way it certainly started. But speaking of reliability, uh, in this case, all 22 cars and drivers finished the race in the, in the case of China. So even though there was all the on-track action, these crashes, punctures, uh, people coming to pit for new front wings and obviously uh, you know blown tires and things like that, uh, but in spite of all that, uh, all the way down to 22nd place, Julian Palmer and the Renault uh, was only one lap down. And of course, the safety car helped uh, mid-race to, to bunch them up a little bit, but no retirements from this race. So a lot of the reliability things, I think, are getting ironed out and um, separate from the you know the vari variations in the starts and the, the clutches and different things like that that people are working on. Uh, the overall just reliability of keeping the cars running, we haven't had, you know, didn't have any engine failures in this case, uh, no, no massive uh, you know, massive crashes that were enough to uh, to put out any cars. So uh, I think that's a positive sign. 
And this is, of course, all before we've gotten back to the, the European section of the season where uh, teams can do some more development and start pushing things forward a little bit more. So I'm pleased to see reliability-wise that all the cars, even even the Renaults, that which the with the late season redesign to uh, take a car that was designed for the Mercedes engine and stick the Renault in it and all that, that, you know, you think, okay, maybe they'd have some issues with cooling and with connecting everything and, and reliability. Uh, even, of course, you know, the Manor Mercedes with uh, near the bottom with uh, their lower budget and smaller team and all that, uh, let alone just, you know, the Haas team being brand new and, and uh, you know, this wasn't as dr- as much of a dream weekend for them as the previous ones have been, but everybody was there to finish. So I think that's a good takeaway that at least it's not going to be uh, necessarily just a whole bunch of attrition and who's left, that we do get to see some good battling throughout the field. Uh, we had, you know, a bunch of passes in this case, and uh, this did shake up the order a little bit um, with, uh, you know, like you say, the Red Bull Tag Heuers having, having those cars third and fourth, you know, Danny Kafiat on the podium for the second time. That's very exciting, especially going into the Russian Grand Prix after this. And uh, we just, you know, having Hamilton have to fight his way through the field and, of course, having his, his puncture right away put him on the back foot for doing that. But that did add to some of the excitement of what was going on. So it wasn't just the Lewis and Nico run away from it show. It was Hamilton having to having to work for it and, and make his way through. So that was all all part of the fun. But uh, it was not, uh, you know, not not retirements that uh, decided the, the way the points, points got scored. You mentioned Danny Kafiat being on the podium. Really good drive by the Russian to do so. And the perfect... Uh, jumping off point to head to the Russian Grand Prix, and I'm sure he'll be excited to repeat or even improve upon that feat. However, he was also in the midst of a fair amount of controversy. Right at the beginning, the first corner of the first lap of the race, Sebastian Vettel ran right into Kimi Raikkonen. Now, Vettel apologized to Raikkonen and the team right away and then immediately blamed Daniel Kafiat, the Red Bull, who was driving, I forget the exact words, I'll paraphrase, he was driving crazy or something like that. He, you know, basically said Daniel Kafiat was driving way too aggressive in the opening of the race and essentially blamed Kafiat for what put Raikkonen on a different and much less ideal strategy and also forced Vettel. Vettel had to do a wing change and Vettel was ended up in the back of the pack at the beginning of the race as well. He, before the podium ceremony, confronted Kafiat about it and said, hey, the way you were driving was way too aggressive. That wasn't cool. And Kafiat was like, hey, we're on the podium. Let's celebrate. This is great. And Vettel's like, no, no, no. I'm not happy with you. That wasn't cool. And Kafiat's like, well, you're on the podium and I'm on the podium, so I don't see a problem here. And I'm really curious what your opinion of that exchange was, Jim. Yeah, when you put it that way, it sounds like a reasonable position for Kafiat to take. But the way he said it at the time, he was super smiley and like not taking Vettel seriously. And of course, this is just in the uh, post race. The guys have done the weigh in and they're kind of getting water and getting getting your you know hats and whatever right before they go on the podium. So they're still kind of charged up from being in the race cars. And uh, and Kafiat just doesn't take Vettel seriously at all. He's just sort of like. It's like, whatever, dude, like, what are you even talking to me about? Like, we're all here. It's fine. And not even sort of any kind of like, yeah, okay, it was a little crazy, but hey, I'm glad it all worked out. And, you know, any kind of acknowledgement that Vettel had a good point. So that, that I, I didn't, that, that did kind of rub me the wrong way, I guess, uh, that it wasn't a, a little bit more conciliatory, uh, but it was just very much uh, not taking Vettel seriously. Uh, but I guess he's got a point. I mean, yeah, that's part of the point of aggressive racing. And there is that fine line of aggressive to crazy and at what, what, you know, at what point do you go from just being fast and aggressive to being going too far and forcing your way in? 
so thankfully, it didn't end Vettel's race. Of course, that would have uh, then he wouldn't have been there on the podium. And that, that's the point that Danny was trying to make was, hey, it didn't end your race. But as Vettel said, it very well could have. And the fact that it very well could have, uh, I think it was on the, on the aggressive side. And even if he made that same move in the moment, I would have been happy to see Kafiat be just a little bit more reverent, I guess, to uh, four-time world champion Sebastian Vettel and a little bit more acknowledging of, yeah, it was a little bit crazy, but hey, thank, you know, good, good thing it all worked out. All's well as it ends well, blah, blah, blah. And uh, just not, not be quite a dismissive tone. So I... I understand where you're coming from. I, I have a little bit of a hard time with this, though, because it was Vettel that brought it up to Kafiat right away. And you could make the argument to say, is that really the time to confront someone about an issue like this if you want to have reverence, if you want to have a real conversation and the pros and the cons? Because, yeah. Kafiat is elated that he made it to the podium. He doesn't get to the podium very often. And he didn't hit anybody. It was the opening of the race. He was aggressive. He saw a gap, and maybe it was a touch opportunistic, but he didn't hit anybody. Vettel's the one that wiggled and hit his own teammate. So, I, for me, it wasn't a black-and-white blatant move by Kafiat. For me, it was a race start with aggressive moves on all sides and Kafiat made what I would say is maybe a touch on the aggressive side but also very good move and did very well for his Red Bull racing team and he scored on the podium and he scored ahead of his much more highly regarded teammate Daniel Ricciardo so here he is he's pushed really hard he had an aggressive move he was successful and then you know, Debbie Downer from Germany comes over and starts trying to raid on his parade. So I think it's pretty understandable that a 22-year-old would get pretty defensive pretty fast. And I think, as I said, I'm I'm not entirely convinced that Vettel couldn't have done something differently in the car himself to not his, his own teammate as a result of what Kafiat did. Yeah, four-time world champion Debbie Downer, but still... Uh, so we do, uh, Formula1.com has posted a video, this side-by-side uh, onboard shots of both Vettel and Kafiat. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, which if you're not aware, are in the podcast player of your choice and also available at funwithcars.com slash the episode number. Uh, so you can always you can always pull it up there and uh, just go to funwithcars.com and there's there's links to everything. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's, it, it's a it's a good call. Uh, you could you could sort of spin it either way, and thankfully, of course, it did end up with both guys on the podium. But uh, I, I guess I, I put a little bit more uh, stock in what Vettel has to say about it than sort of the flippant attitude of the youngster. But hey, so it goes. I think I think Kafiat kind of thinks he's, or I think should uh, feel like he's driving for his job at this point with uh, both Max Verstappen and Carlos Sainz, probably Max a little bit more likely to move up to the to the proper Red Bull team. Uh, Ricardo's doing a very good job to keep himself there, but I think uh, Kafiat does have to be concerned about showing off his talents as a driver, but also being diplomatic and uh, trying to do what he can to keep his job there. But also think about if he does get booted out at Red Bull, which as we know can happen, uh, they're, they're very quick to, to move on and get different drivers and, and keep moving people through. And they've got plenty of people waiting to, to move up into drives that uh, Kafiat should think about what other teams he might end up at. And some teams may want a really aggressive driver that goes for any opening and makes it happen. And some guys may want, uh, some teams may want a driver that's a little bit more diplomatic and uh, you know, a little bit more conservative maybe, but of course in this case he took a gamble and it worked out. So I guess as, uh, as I sometimes say, you can't argue with success. You can't. Um, but 
you can defend yourself if success wants to come and argue with you. I don't know. I I, I see your point completely. And, you know, I don't think Vettel was... It's not like Vettel's an unreasonable driver in general. But, you know, I don't know. I'm sympathetic to Kafiat's position. And I'm also, as the four-time world champion, you know, Vettel and the elder statesman between the two, although, in my opinion, they're both youngsters, that uh, Vettel would have more experience and frame of mind to say, okay, I want to talk to this guy, but now it's not the time because this is going to be the most likely time he's going to be defensive. Yeah, and I guess the other thing they could do is they could pull up that link uh, from our show notes to Formula1.com with the side-by-side onboards because that would give each of them a perspective that they didn't have at the time, and then they could both review it and sort of see what it looked like from outside the car because, of course, they they had different perspectives in each other's cars at the time, so it would probably look different to Vettel than it did to Kvyat, and uh, they, you know, to, to be able to actually review the footage and see what happened and then comment on it could get a uh, more nuanced discussion, but... Anyway, I mean, it's it's always kind of interesting. Unfortunately, with U.S. coverage, that little pre-podium, uh, you know, the awkward, you know, room of awkwardness, the multi twenty-one, and all the other weird things that happen there, we oftentimes miss that because they usually cut from right basically after the checkered flag and the cars are rolling in. There's a commercial break because they've been saving up a commercial from watching the last ten laps of the race or so, and then they come back to the podium ceremony. So that's actually one of my favorite things about when we watch international coverage that doesn't have commercial breaks is to be able to see these weird little down moments where sometimes you get this bits of personality that you don't always see in, in press conferences and on the podium and things like that. So uh, in this case, of course, they, they did air that little bit, uh, but that's sometimes uh, some of the some of the interesting things is, you know, the dynamics between the drivers. And of course, these are only the guys that ended up on the podium, but a lot of times it's teammates and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's former rivals and all kinds of different things. So um, it, it, I'm glad we were able to see it in this case, but I do have to say with uh, American coverage, it's sort of rare that we get to see that little moment and, uh, it's it's too bad because there's oftentimes little interesting tidbits that we can pick up from it. Very true. Let's uh, stay on Red Bull here just a little bit. Third and fourth. Uh, Fiat on the podium. Daniel Ricciardo right behind him. Uh, fourth place, 12 points. Daniel Ricciardo doing very well this season. Daniel Ricciardo, great attitude, great, great driver, wicked quick, aggressive. I think he... It very well could be the fan favorite of the Formula One drivers. I know he's one of my favorites. I mean, he's no Kimi Raikkonen, but he's up there. He's a honey badger, man. He don't care. <clears throat> Here's the thing. Red Bull Racing, third and fourth place. They split the Ferraris. Vettel second, Kimi Raikkonen fifth. They are still running Renault engines. They just renamed them. Do they, speaking of apologies, owe Renault, Renault an apology? I say yes. I think, yeah, sort of ideally or philosophically, but in practice, are they going to apologize or what would that apology really mean? You know, it's it's different. Of course, there are people that work at both these companies, at Red Bull and at Renault, and at some level, it is a personal relationship between some people. But a lot of this, I mean, it's it's business and it's it's money and it's contracts and, and it's, you know, media presentations and stuff like that. So uh, what would really be gained, I, I you know, I wonder from if... What would there be a press conference and Christian Horner would be there and Daniel Ricardo when they would say, oh, hey, guys, you know, we were saying Renault sucked and now we say Renault's OK. A single like, rose, I don't know. a box of chocolates, you know, your head between your knees just a little bit. I completely agree with everything you're saying, Jim, except for the fact that Red Bull behaved the way they did last year. It, I, it was borderline childish and they blamed their engine for everything. Meantime, 
Toro Rosso, who was also running the Renault engine at the time last year, was faster than Red Bull half the time. So when you're in those circumstances and it is just business, if they were being adults and businessmen like last year, I totally agree with you and I wouldn't have even brought this up. But because Red Bull was so aggressively blaming the engine last year, I kind of feel like there should be a, um, yeah, so maybe we weren't entirely fair last year. Our bad. Like, what's the European Formula One constructor version of that? Yeah, I agree there should be, that, and that they acted poorly last year. Uh, but just in terms of the logistics of what, you know, is that going to be some kind of little ceremony? Are they going to send them a cake? Is it going to be some cutesy thing on Twitter where they, you know, I mean, that, that seems like the kind of thing it would be is a little they Red Bull F1. They should send them a cake. They should send them a cake. See, Jim, that's why you should be in Formula One. You should be one of the team principals because that's a brilliant idea. Send them a cake that said, so sorry, your engines are great. Here's some cake. Turns out it's not me. It's you. No, wait, it's not you. It's me. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, but, but like where the, at this point, it just seems like it would be weird uh, to come out and, uh, yeah, have some kind of a presentation or just a little tweet at them and say, ha ha, th- sorry for, sorry for pissing you guys off last year. Ha ha, lol. The real apology is to be, to perform well and thank the engine when they perform well, which they haven't really done yet, but that's what they could do. And then sending them the cake could be so this tag is real fast. The sending them on the cake could be the icing of the cake. Get it? The oh, because it's, it's the icing. Yes. But it's a cake, though. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, th- this is why you should be in public relations, because you just understand <laughs> this stuff. Well, okay. But the problem with that statement is I actually am now. So anyway, I think it's great that Red Bull is competitive again. It's always good to see Daniel Ricciardo in a competitive car, and sure enough, Kafiat as well. The Ferraris, really, boy, they were... At one point, it looked like they could genuinely threaten for pole uh, on Saturday, Saturday's brand new, <laughs> brand new going back to the old knockout qualifying that we enjoyed in China for the first time in 2016. Then it turned out to not be the case at all. Nico Rosberg, the sole Mercedes in Q3, set a record uh, qualifying time. Once again, the qualifying time in China in 2016 was the fastest lap they've ever seen faster than the V10s. So I just say this as another reminder, we don't need to make these cars tons faster. They're as fast as they've ever been. And the, the Ferraris were half a second off. Now both Vettel and Raikkonen claim that they just made mistakes and that's what cost them the time. But I think the truth is that there's still a few tenths off of Mercedes and both drivers are trying so, so hard that it's forcing errors. Yeah, I mean, certainly on Saturday they were threatening. And it's it's interesting, we immediately switched back to the 2015 spec qualifying. Uh, so no eliminations now, just the knockout formula that we had before. And Ferrari immediately switched back to what they used to do, which is uh, not always, but I think tended to do, which is to basically let it go to down to the wire where you just have one chance in Q3, you know, go out in Q1 and Q2, set good enough times to get through the session. Oh, that's then, not true, though. Uh, Vettel did that, but Raikkonen did did attempt twice. Raikkonen, right. Raikkonen, Raikkonen did two laps, effectively, and Vettel just waited till the end to do one. And okay. Raikkonen's faster lap was the first of his two laps, 
And then on the second lap, actually, I'm not Raikkonen might have been marginally faster the second time around, and it doesn't matter. Second time around, they both made a mistake that, you know, cost them a couple of tenths. Yeah, they, they both went wide, and it was strangely consistent between the two of them. I mean, they both they both went wide, and I forget which turn that is, but uh, you know, before the before the last left hander onto the uh, onto the front straight, and uh, it was just like a, a weird little like, okay, yeah, you, this is this is kind of the point of the qualifying session not being just a single flying lap where if you make your one mistake, then it, that's that's your whole qualifying that you can have multiple tries at it and get faster and faster. But what the teams have sort of optimized and figured out to do using tires and planning fuel strategy and all the whole thing is to what ends, ends up being is a uh, one lap flyer, you know, give it just as one chance. And of course, uh, with, with Vettel making a little bit of a mistake and, and Rosberg not improving uh, as much as he wanted to on his time, that uh, it just kind of ended up back being like, okay, well, they qualified a little bit down. And, uh, but Ricardo's lap, I mean, I, I, I was so happy to see that, uh, to see him go as, as high as he did. And the laps from the Ferraris weren't that bad. So it was still a great job, Ricardo, to, uh, to get up there. And then both the Ferraris were just sort of kicking themselves for not going a little bit faster. By the way, uh, you mentioned Ricardo's P2 qualifying time, which was very impressive. China is considered one of the important motor tracks. Just saying. Tag Heuer, baby. Very true. Now, the race results, the other thing that really stuck out in my mind, well, there are many things, of course, but uh, the performance of McLaren. McLaren, first of all, finished uh, the Chinese Grand Prix on the lead lap. That, I think, is a thing to consider, and that was both McLarens. Fernando Alonso, 12th, Jensen Button, 13th, finished on the lead lap. At times, they were well into the points, um, but they just couldn't quite sustain it. And I don't know, it was really, there were moments where I thought, wow, this McLaren's really coming back. They could be a consistent Q3 threat and hold that speed in the race. But then where they ended up finishing was only so-so. I'm confused by them. Yeah, and throughout the race, actually, because of the weird... um you know, several guys uh, on non-standard strategies with, I'm thinking Ricardo with his puncture and Hamilton with his cut tire and going on the pits. Like we had a weird pit orders. Like things got really shifted around. I mean, looking at the lap chart from this race and it's like just all over the place with who was where and for how long. And the only sort of sane part is one during the safety car period when you're not allowed to pass anybody. And then at the very end, it sort of settled down, um, except with uh, a couple people moving around, uh, you know, Max Verstappen making some moves late and, and signs as well. But, uh, yeah, Alonso was running third for a while, then back at fourth, and then it you know got shuffled around in the pits and all that. So it was it was really hard to get a sense for people's real pace when things were so off cycle with pit stops. Which I think that's part of the fun. I mean, to be honest, when it's all just a you know a one stopper for everyone, uh, that's not nearly as interesting. So uh, this goes back to a lot of the conversations that are having about uh, changing the engine formula and changing downforce levels and changing uh, all the, you know the way the the grids are and the weekends and all kinds of goofball stuff. But uh, as Toto Wolf came out and said uh, just in the last couple of days that do we really need to do this big shakeup because, hey, aren't the races pretty fun right now? And, you know, this having this kind of race shows that where you don't know uh, who's going to be where and it's an interesting, you have to follow the race to see what's going what's going to happen. I mean, I guess the one uh, almost constant on the whole lap chart is Nico Rosberg, who started first and was second for two laps behind Daniel Ricciardo uh, and then was back to first and stayed there for the entire rest of the race. So if that happened, and of course, if Hamilton were up there, you can imagine he would be doing a pretty similar uh, place. but the rest of it was interesting to follow. And it's for, at times, you know, there was something for everyone to cheer about and uh, seeing these, uh, seeing their drivers move through the field and, uh, and gain places and lose places and have, have good luck in the pits and all that. Uh, I think what really hosed McLaren Honda, of course, was the timing of the 
what red flag in Q2 where they were like about to do a run and then and then there was red flag and they couldn't redo it and so just the, the timing that got unlucky and uh, maybe if the McLarens had started higher up then uh, they could have made some more uh, out of what they had but it was it, you know it was fun in that way to uh, to have these different strategies it was uh, fun and yet frustrating to follow Lewis Hamilton's progress as uh, we kind of hoped he'd, he'd he'd plow through the field and he sort of did for a while but then got held up and uh, and then you know had this you know the weird tire calls and stuff and just didn't end up coming together super well for him. Uh, but overall, it's like a little bit hard to say, it, are, are the next few races going to be as interesting as the last few? I mean, it, it's not a guarantee by any means. And, and we've had the drama of changing around the qualifying stuff. And uh, of course, the the uh, wet practice in, in, in China, which slowed down a little bit of the development. And, you know, it's just it's so many factors going on. So I guess we'll just have to see as the next couple races happen, are they also exciting or is it still worth looking into changing around the sport? But I think after the whole qualifying debacle, a lot of people are going to be hesitant to just make changes uh, as willy-nilly as they were, uh, because it's there is something to be said for things that aren't broken not being fixed. And uh, I think I'm I'm generally all in favor of progress and moving forward and trying new things. But yeah, I have to say uh, it was I think a, a good step forward in this case to take a step backward, and uh, that maybe we can just you know hang out where we are right now with the way the tires and fuel and engines and everything are and downforce is like yeah maybe we can just leave it for now and see how it goes. Uh, the race starts are better. You know, the single clutch, less uh, regulated race starts. That's an improvement. There's, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit of a, of a gamble to see, okay, is pole, is the pole sitter going to enter turn one first? That's a much bigger question than it used to be. And we can see more shakeup and that's much appreciated. The, Limited communication between the engineers and the drivers, I think, is just silly and complicated. Doesn't make sense. Uh, I'm I'm not sure of any real gain. That yeah, it's really hard to say if that's actually helped us or right. maybe even hurt. It, yeah, who knows? I think that's change for change's sake, which I'm not really a fan of. And uh, but you know, obviously, we've talked plenty about the qualifying knockout. Qualifying is back, um, and we did have uh, some comments about that. In fact, we got an email on this very subject from Jamie Bell, who wrote, I just wanted to pass on some thoughts on the Australia-style qualifying format. There's no doubt Australian qualifying system was very poorly thought through. However, I believe there was an extremely good qualifying system possible with only a few fundamental changes to it. So what he was suggesting was, at the start of each qualifying session, there is one minute for everyone to get out on the track when the then the when the pit exit is closed from this point, if anyone pits before the end of the session, their time is locked and they cannot go out again. After each 90 seconds, the person at the bottom of the timings is not allowed to start a new lap, um, but must make their way to the pits. So basically what Jamie is suggesting is, Hey, the whole point of this thing was to get all the cars out on track, trying for, uh, their qualifying time, the entire session, and not just one one run at it and then come back in and adjust and so on. And certainly, I think I think that's a good suggestion in the sense that that's what the original intention of eliminating elimination qualifying was. The problem is that the way modern Formula One cars are set up and the way the tires are. You're own you're 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 not going to be able to pull that off. The tire's going to wear out, so everyone's first first one or two laps are going to be the best. 
and then the tires will kind of slowly get worse from there. I think that's just the way modern Formula One tires are constructed and the way modern Formula One cars are built, that that wouldn't actually have the end effect that you're going for. However, what I will say, Jamie, is I think that would have been a much better way to implement the new qualifying format that would have given would have forced the driver's hands and the team's hands some more and given the audience a fairer um, shake at that new format to see whether they liked it better or not. I'm going to disagree a little bit in that, um, and, and where these things get difficult, of course, is these little edge cases, because I would hate for a small team to go out and do some sort of a reconnaissance run and think, okay, this is good. I just need a little bit more front wing. Oh, but I can't come in and change it, even if there's, you know, 15 minutes to go in the session or whatever and not be able to come in and make a change and come back out and do the best lap that they possibly can. So I get where sometimes like the um you know the intent of the rule is to say is to keep cars on track and going but to sort of have the time locked in. There are cases where I think just about anyone would want a car to be able to come in, make a small change or whatever and, and come back out. So uh and and of course with fuel, um part of the goal is you want to of course set your lap when you're on lightest of fuel as possible because that's just going to be easier to set a fast lap. Um but if you mess, mess up for whatever reason, and want to come back at it and get another run, then maybe you have to um, put more fuel in the car because it was already so low that you have to put a little bit more fuel in. And that's a lot of what scuppered the uh, the 2016, you know, I guess beginning of 2016 rules is I don't think the uh, the people, the rule planners accounted for how long it takes to refuel modern F1 cars because they're not designed for in-race refueling. So the idea of like, oh, just stay on track and when you need to come in, just do a quick pit stop and come back out. But I think fuel wasn't accounted for. And that's a lot of why it didn't really work in, in elimination mode. So I, I get the idea behind it, but I think in practice, there's, you know, it's not a super easy problem to solve. I guess the easy solution is to go back to what we had, because if, if nothing else, it was tried and true and tested, and we all understood it as fans, and the presenters knew how to talk about it, and the teams well, knew well, how to on. work for it. We didn't we didn't just understand it. We liked it. it. It is. It was, and now is, again, a good format. Is it perfect? No. But is it the biggest problem in Formula 1? Definitely not. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, but I guess to, to say, you know, I guess I give the team uh, a little bit of credit that came up with the new uh, new qualifying format to say if if their job is to say hey we we think we should have a new qualifying format like that's the flawed premise I guess but within that premise that there are a lot of little things to consider so I, I appreciate uh, Jamie's feedback and I think yeah there's other little little tweaks that could have been made and should have been made uh, and I guess what we'll see is as things evolve for next year I don't think this is off the table now as a discussion I don't think anyone has decided okay it's going to be this format forever. It's now going to be okay. Let's let's look at how we can make this decision better with more parties involved and more testing and understanding of what's going on to try to make something that is a, a good show that represents the sport well that uh, you know meets the other requirements of uh, just basically having cars on track and doing interesting things and maybe gives us some unexpected results if people uh, are are a little bit clever and they can maybe move up the grid a little bit more than otherwise they would deserve to. Now there are some other objectives to look at, uh, but yeah, I think I think we can all agree that we gave elimination qualifying a chance and that it really just didn't pan out as uh in a positive way for really anyone agreed agreed on all counts and speaking of things that didn't pan out for me predictions oh my goodness this was a good one so so many people had hamilton for uh pole position and then of course the news came out a couple days before the race that uh, he was going to have to take a great uh, gearbox penalty uh, so five grid spots back. So even if he qualifies pole, he's at least going to be, you know, back to fifth or back to sixth. But then in Q1, Lewis went out and 
uh, said it radioed in, said the car fell down on power, and then went back into the pits to investigate it, and uh, then never came back out. It was just some technical problem, something with fuel. I think that wasn't, I don't know, something wasn't right. And uh, he, Lewis Hamilton, was not able to set a time, so the gearbox penalty didn't end up mattering. And then they decided, decided if we're going to start from the back, we might as well change the engine and you know get some other stuff out of the way while we're already starting from the back and try to make the most of it. So it was the worst possible result for people predicting Hamilton because as we as we've talked about. If there are any penalties or things like that, our prediction system works by where the driver actually started the race. And in this case, the driver started dead last. Uh, there was, of course, some talk of him starting from the pit lane. And in hindsight, he probably wishes that he did to avoid all the, uh, the nonsense of uh, going through turn one and, and dealing with traffic and, of course, getting a puncture and, and going on from there. But that is what happened. So everyone who picked Hamilton got maximum points for qualifying. And then, of course, a lot of people were going Hamilton, Hamilton. Uh, and then, you know, they would get a lot of points for all the points for qualifying. And then, uh, you know, seven points for the, for the race finish. So, um, I dodged that bullet by picking Rosberg for pole and felt pretty pleased with myself after watching qualifying. Um, but, uh, I have to mention the 16 folks that picked Rosberg Rosberg for a score of zero points for, you know, well done for correctly picking, uh, the result. Then we had a handful of people picking Rosberg Vettel for, which is a one point prediction. Uh, and then a few Vettel Vettels, Ricardo Ricardo, uh, which was (laughs) Daniel Ricardo. Um, so then, uh, I and many other people uh, picked Rosberg Hamilton, which was good for six points. Interestingly, the same as Kimi Raikkonen picking himself, uh, also good for six points. So uh, yeah, we were in a big tie for 27th place uh, with a number of people. Uh, and then you go back to the uh, spreadsheet model. So I beat I did beat Damien this week because uh, Damien is the first of the Hamilton predictors with Hamilton Rosberg uh, for 21 points. I see you, Robin Warner. Hamilton Raikkonen, good for 25 points in this case. Yeah. I will mention two spots behind Jensen Button slash Will Carver which was good for yeah. 23 this week. And yeah. a shout out to uh, last of the human predictors. So all the Hamilton Hamilton pr- uh, predictors all tied with 27 play, uh, twenty-seven points. And the only ones behind them were the the automatic... Uh, no, Brian Hoover had somehow had an Erickson Nasser prediction for 23 points. Uh, otherwise, it's uh, the drivers picking themselves. So Jolian Palmer, uh, the Palmer-Palmer prediction, netting 39 points. So almost the worst it could possibly be. Um, a Hamilton-Palmer prediction would have been dead last. Well, at the sharp end of the grid, it's uh, the exact same thing except opposite because the current leader of uh, the Fun With Cars prediction is Nico Rosberg with a grand total of two points. Tied with Henry Keyes, human predictor. Yes. So good job, Henry. And then Very uh, good job. a few people tied for third place and all that. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm just hanging on in the top 10. I'm, I'm tied with some people for 10th uh, with nine points. So uh, there you go. I'm in, oh no, I'm the only one in 10th. I'm holding on 10th spot all by myself. So that's exciting. But we need to predict for the Russian Grand Prix. Now, Damien, the statistical model, very boring, thinks it's going to be Rosberg on pole and Rosberg for the win. I am curious what you think, Robin. I think that as someone that is in 52nd place, that it's very important for me to pick smart and to pick logically and to use sound judgment with my head and not with my heart and for that reason i am not changing my prediction hamilton will be on pole and kimi raikkonen is going to win the race in sochi russia i'm dropping the mic boom i'm actually not dropping the mic because that would be bad for the mic that's not good podcasting yeah um fair enough uh, I'm, I'm debating because you know, the Rosberg Hamilton combination that I went for, obviously that did a lot better than Ham Ham would have done for me. 
Um, but yeah, I guess I think Hamilton season is going to turn around at some point, but is it going to be now? Yes, I think it is. I will change my prediction to Hamilton, Hamilton. I'm going to put all my eggs in his particular basket and see how it goes. So that's a good split strategy for the three of us with uh, I'm going ham ham. You're saying Hamilton Raikkonen and Damien thinks it's Rosberg all the way. So maybe this will be the time a bunch of Rosberg predictors will get hosed in qualifying if he has some kind of technical problem. So who knows? And that's part of the fun and why it's predictions. So that dude, why do you have so many eggs, man? Well, they're just because I wanted to put something in Lewis's basket. Yeah, but I mean, there's so many things you could put in his basket. He's got a nice like, basket. Why eggs? Because it's, it's where I want to put my eggs. But dude, I I just I feel like you're making assumptions about the capabilities of a basket, and you're just limiting your. You, you need to broaden your perspective. Is my point? Yeah. Don't worry. We'll cut all this out. It's fine. So with <laughs> predictions made for Russia, that wraps up our coverage of the Chinese Grand Prix. As always, please visit Fun With Cars to see links for all the episodes, all the stuff we talk about. There's links to stories and all that. You can see links to our Facebook and Twitter feeds, and you can always send email to feedback at funwithcars.com, and we always appreciate hearing from our listeners. Thank you so much for listening, and tune in next time. Till then, I am Jim Lau. And I am Robin Warner. Is this a good time to have the Russian Grand Prix? Daniel Kafiat says, "Da." <laughs>